So Alan Falk is going to come and read our scripture this morning. As Alan comes uh, to read the words of Jesus, would you please stand? And you've, you've got to go up there. You have to go up there. You really do. You got it. And then just click it off. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who was baptizing, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychra, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well, and it was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw from, uh, for the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? You are greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did he also with his sons and his livestock. Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. And he told her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but the Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, Believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are kind, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that the Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Jesus declared, I am the one speaking to you. I am he. Let's pray. God, thank you for Cornerstone and the influence it's taken here in Midtown. I ask that you continue just to bless this church. And I pray today as John speaks that we get filled with the water and that we, too, where we are dry and thirsty, that you come and fill and renew us. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Thanks, Alan. You can be seated. One, one of my favorite things, um, now I've been on staff at Asbury for the last eight years, but also um, just, you know, getting to know folks in our community as we've had a chance to have lunch, especially when I meet with couples, I'll ask the question, how did you meet? And it's been very fun for me to see people like awkwardly squirm because they want to figure out a way to answer the question that's true, but also not tell me that they met in a bar. <laughs> we met at a restaurant. <laughs> Come on. 
uh, it is funny how it happens almost all the time. I just, they're squirming in front of me. It's just delightful. Uh, I like making people a little uncomfortable. But it's a very typical scene when a couple is, you know, is going to meet in a bar. You've seen this many times in a TV show and movies. The girl is sitting there at the bar minding her own business. The guy approaches, he sits down, and he asks her the question, can I buy you a drink every time? And it's a really predictable scene. Uh, you know, if you see it on TV in a movie, you know what's about to happen. Now, the funny thing is in this text that Alan just read, We've come across a scene that for the people in the ancient Near East, people who would have been the original audience and readers of this gospel, those who are in, in Jesus' contemporaries, they would have seen the scene that has just happened through similar lens. Oh, we know what's about to happen. You know, it's a, it's a guy it meets the girl at the bar kind of scene. It's, there's this distinct narrative uh, archetype in the Bible where people meet uh, their spouse at the well. It happens again and again and again. Man travels to a distant country. Man is thirsty. Man goes to the well, sees a woman at the well, asks the woman for a drink, and then, you know, yada, 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 he asks to meet her family, and then they get married. And it happens again and again in Scripture. It happened, um, Abraham sent his servant uh, to get a bride for his son Isaac. That's how they met. Um, Jacob met Rachel, who became his wife at the well, uh, exactly same thing. Uh, Moses met his wife Zipporah at a well. The exact same thing happens. People know when you travel to a foreign land and you show up at a well and there's a single woman there that there's about to be like uh, an engagement. And so for people in, in the ancient Near East who are reading this story of Jesus, they're thinking, is he about to propose to this girl? They're thinking, this is, this is kind of weird. Um, and especially when you mind some of the details in this passage. The scene would have been familiar, but there were several things about the passage that made this scene really troubling for the original, for the listeners, for the hearers of the gospel. Uh, the first thing was that Jesus is in Samaria. You remember the story of the Good Samaritan? It's a, it's a great compelling story because something unexpected happens. There's a Samaritan who does something good. And, and for Jews, there is no Good Samaritan. There's no such thing as a Good Samaritan. It's, it's the antithesis of everything that we love. Jesus is in Samaria traveling back home to Galilee. He's in a land of people who are, uh, with whom Jews have bad blood. There's this, what happened was in 200 BC, the, the people of Samaria built this shrine, this like temple to rival the place where worship took place in Jerusalem. And, and this was very offensive to the Jews. So 70, 80 years later, they tore it down, and there was always bad blood between Jews and Samaritans. So much so that uh, there were teachers who said, if you drink from a cup after a Samaritan has drunk from it, you're ceremonially unclean. You have to go through a formal process of cleansing and purifying yourself before you can enter the temple and engage in worship. It's very troubling that Jesus was in Samaria because there's bad blood. The second thing is, is Jesus talking with a Samaritan woman, and, and especially as a rabbi, a teacher, it was highly inappropriate in their context for Jesus to initiate a conversation with a woman, much less a Samaritan woman. 
And this is, this is even true. We see these things uh, in the Middle East today. I was in Lebanon last year and met uh, an imam in, in um, Sidon, a biblical Sidon, the city of Sida, and he wouldn't shake hands with a woman. And it wasn't that he was trying to be rude. It's just in the culture, you just don't do it. And so instead of shaking hands, he would put his hand on his heart and make a little bow. Uh, a teacher, someone who's, who's distinguished culturally, would certainly not initiate conversation with a woman. So it's a woman, it's a Samaritan woman, and it turns out that this is a bit of a scandalous woman, which we actually get hints of before they even start talking about the number of husbands that she's had. And so in having this conversation with the woman, Jesus is breaking ethnic boundaries, ethical boundaries, etiquette boundaries. That's good alliteration. Gender boundaries. And this flows out of what we read last week, which was in John chapter 3, for God so loved the world. And in a very different and unexpected sense, in this passage, we see a kind of forbidden love. Well, sure, God loves the world, but not them. Sure, God loves the world, but not, not the Samaritan world. And Jesus is demonstrating what he's just said to Nicodemus. So Jesus comes to the woman at the well, and he says what you're supposed to say, will you buy me a drink? He says, will you give me a drink? I'm thirsty. And, um, and I think about, as a very, very small thing, Jesus relates to human thirst, just a sign of the incarnation. He gets what life is like for us. And the woman, uncomfortable with this situation, because Jews and, Gen Jews and Samaritans don't talk, don't interact, pushes back on Jesus and says, how can you ask me that question? That is highly inappropriate. You're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan. And Jesus responds, if you had a clue what was going on right now, you'd be the one asking me for a drink, and I'd give you living water. And it's another one of those scenes in John's gospel where there's a conversation going on at levels that the people talking with Jesus don't understand. She's like, if you had a clue what was really happening here, you'd be the one asking me, and I'd give you living water. And like a lot of words and phrases in John's gospel, there are a couple of meanings to this uh, phrase living water. Uh, it could be running water compared to well water that's stagnant. It could be running water, but it's also life-giving water. This water that in a unique way gives life. And we think, wait, this is about more than water here. And so she understands one of the meanings. Well, do you have this hidden river around here? I mean, I'm kind of from here. Are you greater than our father Jacob? And the reader who understands what's going on says, yeah. But the woman doesn't have a clue what she's saying. And Jesus responds, and he says, everyone who drinks this water, this natural water from the well, is going to be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst, and in fact, that water is going to bubble up on the inside of them to eternal life. It will become in them a spring welling up to eternal life. And we get this sense okay, I'm not sure we're talking about water anymore. But we're talking about something bigger, something better. As we pay attention, if you sit with the text, you see there's something going on with this woman. It's not just that she's got a thirsty body. She has a thirsty soul. And she hasn't been able to, to quench that thirst despite her efforts. And we know this from the text. Uh, even in our culture, having five husbands is a lot. But all the more in theirs. 
And now, as it comes out in the course of conversation, she's moved on to guy number six. Uh, And this woman is carrying shame on the inside. She's carrying some meaningful emotional baggage. One of the clues is, is that she showed up at the well at noon. We know from Genesis 24 the, the custom was to go get water in the evening. Imagine you're, you're in the Middle East. It's really hot. In noon, it's like the hottest for the whole day. You don't want to go to a well and you're sweating and you're putting the bucket or whatever it is up on your head and walking all the way home. Now, you're going to go when the temperature gets a little bit cooler. And so we start to piece together the narrative about this woman. She's had five husbands. She's moved on to guy number six. And she showed up at the well at noon because she didn't want to interact with anybody else. It's just Jesus and this woman at the well. She's an outcast. She's a loose woman. She's got a lot of hurt. And obviously, she's coming back to the well because she's in trouble without it. She's got to drink water, but she's also returning to another source because she's got another and a deeper kind of thirst on the inside. She's got this, this, this sense in her that things aren't okay, and I need to keep going back to this thing to feel okay. And for her, it's men. That if she's not with a man, she's not okay. And it's that sense of not okayness within her that makes that relationship not work out. And it was cursed from from before it started. She's thirsty. She's got a thirsty soul. I wonder, to what extent do you relate to this woman? What does it take for you to feel okay? You know, there there are lots of quotes. Uh, Blaise Pascal's got this quote. um, All of the problems in the world can be summed up in a man's inability to sit alone in a room quietly. Or um, these desert fathers, early church fathers said, um, uh, sit alone by yourself and it will teach you everything. Mostly it will teach you your your shadow side, uh, what's not okay within you. There's this uh, singer, Trent Reznor. He's in the band Nine Inch Nails. And he did an an interview with NPR, and he said this. He said, my life has been many examples of short-sighted goals that I thought would fix things. If there's something broken, if there's a hole in them, if I could just write a good song someday, then I'd be okay. If I could just be on stage in front of people and be validated by them. I've experienced a lot, but it didn't fix things. It wasn't the solution to being spiritually complete and whole. And this isn't like a testimony interview at the back of Christianity Today. This is a guy bearing his soul to national public radio and saying, this is true of me. And I think how many successful people are out there, you know, and how many people are in here uh, who look just amazing on the outside, who are really successful, who you'd look at them and think they're fine. They're doing great. Man, I kind of, I wish I were like them. But on the inside, they're living every day with a great big hole in the middle of them. And I think of how many foolish mistakes, how much self-destructive behavior has come from people looking great on the outside but having a great big hole right down the middle of them. Um, And someone, I don't remember whose quote this is, talks about the number of regular people who walk around with lives of quiet desperation. You're thinking, I am keeping this together with duct tape, but I could snap at any minute. How how many self-destructive behaviors do we see by people who look good on the outside, but inside are leading lives of quiet desperation, hoping to God that something will make them okay? 
And we're afraid of confronting this reality that there's that unquenchable thirst within us, that there's something that we need. And I think even, even for me as, as, a, as a human being, uh, this happens as a pastor, as a parent, the times when I am the most harmful to others is when I'm living out of my insecurity, when I'm living out of my own woundedness. And you put that on scale to the human race, and you think, what a heartbreak. I've done my most, my most harm when I'm living out of that thirst, out of that insecurity. And I think, why did Jesus say, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness? Why did he say, congratulations, if you hunger and thirst for righteousness? I think if you hunger and you thirst for it, there's embedded in that a confession that you don't have it. And if you've ever been to AA, that's step one. It's admitting that, that there's a problem. And I think in an unexpected and, and relieving way, if you're a person who feels that hunger and thirst to be okay, and you've taken the next step to acknowledge that you are not okay, that is the grace of God at work in your life. It's the grace of God at work in your life getting you to admit that you are not and you have not what you need. It's the evidence of God's grace to live in reality and begin to see yourself as you are, which can be heartbreaking. Heartbreaking. Jesus doesn't have anything to offer you if you don't think you need anything. Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Why are you blessed? Why would you say congratulations? Because you'll be filled. Jesus said, whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. And in verse 15, the woman has this great response. It's deeper than she even realizes. She says, sir, give me this water so I don't ever have to be thirsty again. Give me this water so I don't have to keep back coming, coming back here to the well. And, and, and she means it talking about water. She doesn't want to haul it, but she also means it on this deeper level. If there's something that can quench the thirst within, please give me that. And uh, the story goes on longer than what we read. Uh, Jesus makes this confession to the woman that he's the Messiah, and the woman runs off back to town. The woman who had been hiding out from everyone else runs back to town and says, I found the Messiah. And what's so amazing about this is there's a verse that says, and many of the Samaritans believed because of this woman's testimony. Because of what she'd experienced and begun to experience with Jesus, other people came to believe. Not only did Jesus quench her thirst, filled her to overflowing. Not only did Jesus begin to rescue this woman, he gave her a, a purpose. And she was the one through whom the Samaritans came to believe that Jesus was the Messiah. The least likely candidate, a woman, a Samaritan woman, and a promiscuous woman. In this culture, this is utter scandal. Not only did Jesus rescue her, but Jesus repurposed her. And he wanted to include her in his story. It's through a scandalous woman that the gospel came to Samaria. And so I just ask you do, you, do you thirst? And if you do, you're blessed. Congratulations. Do you have a thirst within you? 
one of the things I've been learning as I've been studying John's gospel is that I really believe Jesus respects us. He respects our intentions. And so when, when, Jesus, when the woman says to Jesus, sir, give me this living water, I think Jesus has every intention of honoring that request. In John 3, whoever believes in him won't perish. I think Jesus respects our choice to believe or to not believe in him. If you have a thirst, if you have a hunger, like we sang earlier, that was so good for me to sing, we're hungry for more of you. If you're hungry to be well, tell Jesus, sir, give me this living water so I don't have to keep back coming here. I mess that up every time. Keep coming back here. Whatever you got, I'll take it. Food, water, spirit, whatever you got, I'll take it. Jesus doesn't just want to rescue us. Can you imagine your life not just held together with duct tape? Can you imagine that you might have experienced stability in life? Can you even conceive of your life where you're not like the one everyone's always praying for? Jesus didn't just want to rescue the woman. He wanted to make her well, and he wanted to fill her to overflowing. She had something to contribute, and she had a, a part to play in the broader story. Jesus has a part for you to play in his story. Jesus is capable of changing your life. Jesus is capable of making you well. Will you trust in him? Man, will you invite him to make you well? Sir, give me this living water, please, whatever you got. Man, if you're thirsty, if you need to be made well, ask him. Ask him. Ask him. And I pray for us as a church that God would give us the grace to thirst for the living water that Jesus gives. Um, I haven't sung We Are Hungry since 1997. Um, but I thought, oh, what a good prayer for a community. We're hungry for more of you. We're thirsty, Jesus, for more of you. I don't know that God, I don't know that, that God particularly needs a church who doesn't think we need him. I want us to be a church who is aware of how deeply we need the Spirit to revive us. I can't change anybody's life. We can't contribute anything meaningful, anything that will last apart from the work of the Spirit of God. May God give us the grace to be a community that hungers for the living water that only Jesus gives. Um, a pastor I really like uh, named John Tyson, really only like pastors whose names are John, <laughs> referenced this book a, a while ago called Revival in the Hebrides. It's a horribly written book. Uh, it's, you need to fire that editor. But because you read the first chapter and you start the second chapter and you think, didn't I just read that? But it tells the story of this, of this Scottish community called these, this uh, channel of islands called the Hebrides. And in the early 1950s on the Isle of Lewis, uh, there was a, this dominating sense that God was losing. The church was deader than a doornail. Uh, there was a sense that, uh, of like moral drift, that, that there was crime on the rise. Things were not good. Man, it, it grips my heart every time. There was, this, there was this pair of sisters, 85 and 90, and one of them was blind. 
and they committed to each other to pray for their community. And they, two or three times a week, they'd pray until three or four in the morning, earnestly pleading with God to move in their community. And it inspired a group of pastors to get together and, and lay men. And they got together one night in a barn to pray. And they prayed for a couple of hours, and they just felt like they're just hitting a brick wall. It's just not going well. We're not, we're not making progress. And this blacksmith gets up to pray, plain-spoken guy. He says, God, I don't know about these men, but my soul is thirsty. He said, you said in your word, in the passage that, that Ethan read, Isaiah 44, I will pour out my water on the dry ground, and to him who is thirsty I will give water to drink. You said that, and we're not seeing it. We're not experiencing it. How can I ever trust in you again if you don't fulfill your promise? We're asking you to move. And all the pastors who are trying to pray politely were freaked out. They say amen, and the barn starts to shake, and a pitcher falls off the wall. It's 2 o'clock in the morning, and they're like, holy cow. They open up the barn doors, and people are streaming to this barn, streaming to this barn. And it began this season of awakening in, in, in the Isle of Lewis and in the Hebrides where God was moving. Um, one, of the, one of the authors, I think they're using biblical language, says the Lamb of God took the field and bore his arm. Said 75% of the people who came to Christ in that awakening did it outside of the church. There's a story of this kid who was playing in a band and he was like the prodigal. And he was in a bar doing his thing one night, and halfway through the show, his heart is gripped. And, and he's, he turns to his bandmates, and he says, I think I need to leave. I said, where are you going? He said, I think I'm going to church. He leaves the bar. He goes to the closest church he can find. He sees the church with the lights on. He goes up. He peers in through the keyhole, and he sees his dad praying for him. It's the kid that he have been praying for for years. Son goes in and kneels down next to dad, and, and things change. Father and son together go home. They open up the door, and on her face before, before God at the fireplace was mom praying for the son. Man, may God give us the grace to hunger and thirst for him like that. God won't give us what we don't think we need. So maybe one of the best signs of our health in this community is acknowledging how unhealthy we are, is acknowledging and may God please show us how much we need him, how spiritually impoverished we are, how empty-handed we come to these conversations. This is a, a predominantly middle-class educated group, and we are as malnourished and spiritually impoverished as, the, as the, like the most objectionable worst person that you can imagine. We are living lives of quiet desperation. We do need a spiritual awakening. We do need to be resurrected. We just don't have a clue yet. Maybe we haven't lived long enough, or maybe we haven't allowed ourselves to live within reality, but we need an awakening. We need to be resuscitated. We need the living water that only Jesus gives. Ask him for it. Sir, give it to me. 
um, you know, we're doing this potluck in a little bit, and I was thinking, oh, I need to put on social media. If you didn't bring anything, that's okay. Still eat. Because it's awkward if you get invited to a meal and you feel like you should bring something, but not this meal. Everything that Jesus needs, the sacrifice that God requires, he provided. In fact, those who are serving, uh, would you go ahead and come up? Emily, would you do gluten-free? Okay. Um, this meal is the story that made us God's people. Uh, this, this meal is a story that uh, calls to mind all that God did through the Old Testament, the foreshadowing. Remember the story of, of Abraham taking his son Isaac up on the altar? And uh, God provides a lamb so that Isaac didn't have to die. The lamb was slaughtered so that, so that our children didn't have to. Similarly, Jesus himself was slaughtered. He gave his life so that we might find ours. Uh, we remember on the night in which Jesus gave himself for us, he took bread, he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples, and he said, take and eat. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Thank you, Jesus, for giving your body up for us. And after the supper, he took the cup, he gave thanks, gave it to his disciples, and he said, drink from this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant poured out for you and for many, for the forgiveness of sins, do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that you are the living water. You are the food that we hunger for. Thank you for allowing yourself to be broken so that we could be made whole. Thank you for emptying yourself so that we could be filled. Thank you for extending to us your spirit to quench that thirst, to rescue us, to help recover us, and to give us a purpose. Lord, I pray that you would give us the grace of knowing how empty we are. Give us the grace of knowing how sinful we are. Give us the grace of knowing how deeply we need rescue. And as we come especially as we come naming that intention, sir, give us this living water. We're calling on you to do what you promised. We're counting on you to nourish us because where else are we going to go? We're counting on you to, to do a work of your spirit in us so that other people would see us and think, well, they surely didn't get that through a self-help book. We pray together the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.